Hello, and welcome to the Profiting from Data podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Neil Hampson, partner at Strategy and part of the PwC network. Neil is an advisor to executives and investors in tech and industrial businesses, and he specializes in strategy development, value creation, and M&A. Neil is also a member of PwC's global technology leadership team. On this episode, Neil talks about companies gaining an advantage out of external data, challenges to adoption, use cases including corporate use of data across different divisions and departments, as well as PE firms using data to get an edge. Please enjoy this dialogue between Neil and your host, Emmett Kilduff. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Are companies, in your view, increasingly seeking to use external data? They are, and I think probably from a low base a few years ago, spurred on, I think there was a really interesting economist publication. It wasn't just an article, it was kind of 10 or 12 pages, which sort of said, you know, data is the, is the new oil. And then you give it a few weeks after that. And then we saw a lot of organizations saying, well, what, you know, how can I use external data? And then conversely, and we'll probably come on to it later, how, how can I use some of the data that I've got internally? But it started, I guess, in the usual sectors of financial services, healthcare, retail, consumer, all of whom have been seeking over a number of years to get an edge over the competition in, you know, sometimes in markets with relatively low levels of profitability and a bit of a, or a winner takes all market where they thought, if I can get some external data, I can get a, a lead over the competition. I can either understand my customers better or I can do a better trade or I could get better sort of access to sort of fundamentals. And in that point, you, you've got to look at external data in two ways. There's a lot of publicly available data out there that people have either used in very small ways in a small part of the organization. And we're trying to capitalize on that by saying, actually, why don't we do much of a, a wider search and scheme trawl on what we can find publicly? And then, obviously, some people saying, well, what can I buy? And the what can I buy obviously became quite difficult because there were no people sort of brokering this and it was whatever you could find out there. And in many cases, what you were trying to buy really wasn't a particularly high quality because it, it was either incomplete, either in the time series or incomplete in the data that you were you were looking for. So I guess it started with a lot of, well, can I get governmental data or you know quasi-government data or other published statistics from various industries, whatever, and try and use them in in what I'm trying to do. And then increasingly over the last two years, sort of being augmented with data that people are prepared to pay for, but they're only prepared to pay for if it's of high quality. And you mentioned that there were certain sectors that were more obvious users across PwC as a whole. Have you noticed any geographical differences? Yeah, so I sort of US, UK, UK, English-speaking world, similarly things going on in Australia have probably been at the forefront. Uh, Then you get Scandinavia, Germany, and then some of the laggards tend to be, at least what we have seen, is probably Southern Europe. And then there's almost a recognition that it kind of doesn't happen, Middle East, embarrassing. But at this point, I'd probably decline to talk about Asia because I know too little about what's going on in Asia. But if you had to kind of characterize the the Western market, let's say it operates a bit like that, how it operates beyond, I, I, I don't know, to be honest. 
And the innovators are early adopters from your viewpoint. Do they already have a chief data officer in place who's got their internal data in order and are now looking externally? Or is there common denominators that you've seen? I mean, I think the role of the chief data officer is increased. There are more of them. I think the role is being better defined. When it started, it wasn't particularly well defined. In many cases, it was given to somebody internal. So that's someone who you're sort of repurposing and respraying to be. And there are benefits and disbenefits of that. Obviously, the first, if it's someone internal, they know how the organization works. And in many cases, they know where some of the bodies are buried in terms of your own data, and they know where the gaps are. But they're not necessarily trained in the role of being a chief data officer. They were kind of learning on the job. But the converse is true for someone from the outside. I mean, this is, this is a role that didn't really exist probably even five years ago. So how many people have really defined what the role is and are operating in a high-quality level? Is I think the jury's kind of out. You just don't know. I guess there's a parallel to a kind of CISO role where you saw that develop over the last 10 years, and there are now people who are kind of saying, well, this is a, a level one CISO and this is a level four CISO and kind of what they do. But I don't think there's it's that developed yet within most organizations. But I think where did it start? Obviously, again, geographically, the chief data officer role has kind of been invented in the US and mm-hmm. slowly migrating out of out of the US. I know of very few of them in continental Europe outside of the very, very big multinationals or very, very big financial services organizations. I just don't really think they, they exist. Even in professional services, it doesn't exist much. So I mean, we've thought about having one on and off for a while, and we still kind of don't have one. And partly the reason that, for that is we know whoever gets appointed to those roles, and I've had this conversation with clients as well, is a lot of that job is almost like a sort of internal housekeeping and cleaning role before it is a role that is about what do we buy and what do we sell. So how do how do companies gain full advantage out of all this external data? Oh, I mean, I think that's almost the biggest unanswered question because it's I'd characterize it as nobody gets full value and most people get some value. It's hard to define what full I guess full value is you're using it in the most appropriate use case and you are really using it to drive your business forward either in terms of sales or in cost cutting or in customer targeting or and how many organizations really do that those that are sort of born native or born out of tech are probably the only people who could say are getting best value but whether they're getting full value is is even for them debatable and i think most legacy companies are certainly not getting anything near full value they are using it to be better than they would be without it but they still have a limited number of use cases. And so full value could be you're, you're using it in the most appropriate way, but it could also be you're using it in multiple times, in multiple places in your own organization. And I think that's still quite rare. They tend to be purchased for a specific use. Yeah, that's quite interesting. And, and it comes to a question I want to ask you, that there seems to be a lot of silos in these large organizations. And in some cases, certain divisions from the same company are buying the same data set unbeknownst yep. to each department. And maybe the role of the CDO is to coordinate that or, or work with central procurement to coordinate that. But it, it seems to be a little bit like the wild, wild west at the moment. 
It is. I think, yes, there are certainly people who are buying either the same data sets or similar or with slightly different time series or either expansive or contractive in what they're buying. But there's certainly the case that people are buying multiple data sets, absolutely. And, and that's partly to do with size of organization. It's partly to do with culture. It's partly to do with I just need it now and I don't want to go through the three-month, six-month process of procuring information, which makes the CDO role very difficult because not only is it a sort of true sense of, of housekeeping about data, but it's also you know refereeing wars between Department A and Department B who are all both trying to get the same data, but for different purposes at different times. So it's almost a thankless task meant to be to have that role in a large organization because you're nobody's friend really and you're either policing what they can and can't buy or they're policing a fight over who owns something so let's stick with challenges then uh, what are the other key challenges that you see for um, you know, barriers to adoption again trying to say, trying to prove what the roi is on buying data versus not doing it and there's a lot of what well, we've always managed to do it and we you know, we've made X amount of money by not having any external data. Tell me why buying it will give me why. I mean, in most cases, if you're buying a discrete data set, it doesn't really cost a great deal of money. So, you know, as long as you can kind of earn a, a slightly more than cost on the data, people should be doing it, but they don't necessarily see it like that. So the friction comes in of, you know, why am I procuring something? Do I really need it? You know, how many times am I going to use it? You know, what's in it for the wider organization? And therefore, why should I? It's all of those questions that you would get if you were buying in a manufacturing sense a piece of machinery or in a retail sense, you know, why would I be buying a piece of analytics or why would I be investing in a new store? It's Everyone is obviously applying old rules to new things. They're applying physical rules to intangibles, which I guess is why a lot of organizations that are largely intangible do, do better out of it because they've, they've got an understanding that is, in some cases, quite hard to prove, but there's a gut feel that it's better than doing nothing. So that's some of the, that's probably the, the biggest friction that I've come across. How do people overcome it? That's, you know, again, a bit of a, a difficult question. A, a lot of it is, if you see someone in the same industry as you beginning to use data, then people start asking questions. There is not usually a lot of read across between, you know, I, I've read in The Economist that a consumer company is doing something with data. So I'm in a, you know, I'm in an oil and gas company and I must do something with, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's my nearest competitor doing something. So I must do something. So let's move to use cases then, Neil. Um, the title of the podcast is Profiting yeah. from Data, so we love to talk about use cases. Um, let's start with the question I really like to ask. What, what's the best use case that you're aware of? Okay, and uh, this is one that's public, and it's usually something that everyone on the podcast will be aware of because it's all to do with sort of shopping. So everybody kind of knows Oxford Street, Bond Street, and Regent Street in London. You know, they're, at least on in the English-speaking world, they're on the Monopoly board and they're the expensive ones. And that has a trade association, effectively. So all of the retailers belong to this trade association. And it is, in fact, the biggest retail trade association in Europe. So the, yeah, this is the biggest shopping district in Europe, or it was pre-COVID, anyway. 
So in terms of number of visitors, amount of spend, variety of retail outlets, variety of hospitality and entertainment outlets. And their real issue was that their members were saying, I don't know what's going to happen in terms of the customer base in 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. I don't know a segmentation of my customers between people who are local, as in they live in London and they work in London and then they shop here, people who come in from outside of the UK to London to shop, and then international visitors, all of which are are numbered in the millions every year. And there was a, a real lack of understanding about who their customers were. And they wanted to do things like, well, if I'm in a high-end retailer, do I want to have you know, Mandarin-speaking shop assistants or Japanese or French or you know, any other sort of language? Because I, you know, I see lots of people coming in and I would like to improve my sales, but I don't really know where to invest. I don't know what range is to have. I don't know what sells well in, or differently in this retail environment to somewhere else in another city because London is obviously quite unique. So what they ended up doing was doing an ongoing, and it's still ongoing, piece of work where they they try to understand the customer better and do much more micro-segmentation. And they do that by, by acquiring three individual data sets that are well individually quite powerful but put together are kind of super powerful. So the first one is all the data from... Transport for London. So, who's using trains, tubes, and buses? And from that, you can model footfall by time of day, by day of the week, by month of the year. So, you know which stations are going to be very busy, and particularly the ones in their area. Then you can lay on top of that data for uh, from effectively IR to data. So, how many you know Chinese passengers are arriving in the UK in August, and how many French are arriving, and how many Americans, et cetera, et cetera. So that gives people a good idea of month on month, how does it change? And there's different, there's seasonality. There's obviously summer, winter, but there's different seasonality by geography because it depends on when people have holidays, et cetera. Then you've got mobile phone data, which says I can recognize from a SIM card that today I've got, you know, 15,000 people with a Chinese registered mobile in my zone, but I've got 27,000 Americans. And then you overlay further on top of that credit card data, which is obviously country of origin, but it's also demo, it's also demographic. So from that, you can build up a reasonable picture. And obviously, it's hard to match a, phone, a mobile phone to a credit card to say it's an individual person. But you can say, I had 27,000 Chinese, and of which there were 15,000 credit cards used. and the average card spend was, you know, 150 pounds or something. So you can quite quickly build up a picture for them of types of customers based on country of origin, what type of card they're using. Because obviously people use, let's say, Amex has a 50% higher average spend than Visa, for instance. So you've got that data. Then you can say that was spent more often in jewelry and high-end fashion, and you can link that to by the same time they went to a high-end restaurant versus someone who went sort of more bargain shopping, you know, went to Primark and McDonald's and whatever versus someone who went to Selfridges and a high-end restaurant. So from that, you can build up a really 
detailed picture of who is shopping by time of day, by day of the week, and by time of year. And with that, you can give that back to the retailers and say, this is the demographic that is coming to you, and this is how you continue to attract them. This is how you get them to come back. This is how you serve them properly with shop assistants who speak the language. Because yeah. you, you, you did some trials and you can even prove if you put a you know a Mandarin speaker in, in a particular store versus one that where you don't have a Mandarin speaker on the days and months that the Chinese arrive, you get a 30% increase in spend effectively, because they're not they're no longer going from sort of browsing and sort of embarrassingly looking around the store to actually actively buying things. So they found that hugely, hugely beneficial. And the next stage that they're now moving into is they are doing what they call near field repeaters, which effectively can spot an individual within two or three meters and effectively track someone's movement around either a store or around a street. So you can actually watch on a map someone wandering around Oxford Street, Regent Street, Bond Street, and where do they loiter and which shops do they go in. So you can build up an even more targeted picture of correlations between going to different shops. So then you can start saying to people, well, I've just bought something in shop A, and on the sale we can work out approximately who you are, and on the sales receipt we can print out a discount voucher for restaurant B and vice versa. And, you know, given the, the global scale of PwC, the same approach must be repeatable in a lot of big cities. It is. And in fact, we are trying to repeat it now for a big sort of mixed development in LA, which is sports, hotels, shopping and leisure. And the good thing now is it's entirely greenfield, so you all of this technology can be built in from the beginning. And so you can do much more close tracking of people, not as individuals, but as entities. Yeah. It still remains impersonal from a you know a legal point of view, but you're effectively, you know, tracking people and putting them into customer segmentation. So really powerful stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And it works, obviously, for retailers. It works for landlords because, obviously, they now know, you know, if I've got a vacant shop, should I put a restaurant in there or a clothes shop or a jeweler's or a supermarket or a burger joint? They've got much better understanding of how they can have mixed use. It totally makes sense. So that was your best use case. What are some other use cases that you've seen? please, uh, Neil. Yeah, I'm trying to find one that's almost as good, but not not (laughs) quite as good as that. So we've used really good geographic data to help people with sort of logistics and to properly price a service. So let's say you've got something which is effectively a commodity. So you you think there's a unit price for something. But if you say, I've got a unit price for something, but I want it delivered, then actually it's no longer just... A commodity. It's a commodity plus a service, and the service is, is the delivery and the installation, let's say. And so we, we've helped a company that thought it was just selling a commodity to actually sell something that was a service. And so they've, had, they've been able to say, I can price to deliver something 
or 5,000 units of something, let's say. And if you want it tomorrow, it's going to cost you A. If you want it on Thursday, it's going to cost you B. But by the way, we've got a gap in our delivery schedule on Friday morning at 7.30. So if you want it Friday at 7.30, it's going to cost you less. And then that's obviously based on this, the routing algorithms as well, but it's based on what's the cost to serve from a depot to a location. So you can then start to have much more dynamic pricing, and then you can effectively say to some customers, look, you really are in such a remote location that you're going to have to pay for delivery. And if you don't want to pay for delivery, then unfortunately we're not going to be able to serve you at the price you want to serve you, and effectively you have to get served by someone else. It's either closer or in many cases is just as far away but hasn't worked out that the cost of delivery is quite high. So the geodata in this case is based on the customer's position. It's the customer's position, yes, and the position of the depot it's being served from and the routing algorithm for the delivery truck and the time it takes to offload and effectively to to sell a commodity but with effectively a service added on. So this has got sort of dynamic pricing and it's also – so if you live near the depot, you, you were effectively paying for other people's delivery and now you're not, yeah? Because yeah. it was all it was all just averaged, you know. So yeah. we charge yeah. the unit price plus another price for delivery, which was fixed. Well, delivery prices aren't fixed. So yeah. sticking with use cases, then across the different divisions and departments of companies, Neil, whether it's strategy, sales, marketing, human resources, operations, R and D, which of those sorts of departments are are you seeing seek to use external data more? I mean, it, it differs by organization, and it depends on who's who's got the power. It tends to be more market-facing because the argument of I want to buy in external data in order to save cost is a lot harder than I want to buy in external data to drive sales. So it tends to be more in marketing and sales and front office functions than it does in back office. But not surprisingly there are probably just as many use cases in the back office and in the cost-saving area that there are. And the cost of, in many cases, the risk of failure when you're trying to use it to cut cost is probably less than when when you're trying to drive sales, which is always a kind of truism around a lot of things. But in many cases, it's more provable that you can use it to more certainty. Yeah, yeah. But obviously that, isn't where it happens most of the time. So I know I know PwC is a super private equity franchise. Uh, if we move away from corporates, how are you seeing PE firms use all this data? They are using it, let's say, in the context of the of the deal, is they they're seeking an edge. And if they can use a data set even once to get an edge, then they'll use it. I guess in many cases they know that there's an opportunity to do that. But in because the deal window is so short, in many cases, it's a bit of an afterthought rather than we're looking at this business and before we start spending a great deal of money on, let's say, advisors who are really expensive, should we spend a small amount of money on some data? They're increasingly bringing in data analytics people into private equity. Those are the people who are going to drive the the purchase and use and prove the return on investment of data. 
So it's almost a bit of a chicken and egg of you've got to know that there's some data out there, but at the same time, you've got to have some people in the organization who know, who know how to use it. And you can't have one without the other. But we are seeing it increasingly do that. And then post the deal, I think there's much, because they are very much focused on how do I get my return on investment over a three-year or five-year period, they are much more prepared than a corporate, let's say, or a non-PE-owned business to give that a go because they're pulling lots of levers in an organization anyway to do with product or people or the sales function or investment in technology because they've got to they've got to get a return so if they if they they're increasingly starting to use data in many cases the internal but it, or also the external and are you seeing a drive to to get them further returns by monetizing the, the data owned by that portfolio company sometimes but I've seen more failures than successes. So, and part of that is, again, if you come back to this Economist article, which is sort of, you know, data is the new oil. You know, lots of people thought they were sitting on an oil field. Well, they might have been, but it wasn't. It wasn't the light, sweet stuff that everyone wanted to buy. It was the heavy, polluted stuff full of sulfur that surprisingly there wasn't really a market for. So there is a sort of, we've had lots of conversations with people who said, I must be sitting on a gold mine. And in many cases, the answer is, well, you might be, but we've no idea where the gold is in this giant field that you claim you have. And we don't know what the cost of extraction is. So if you think this is going to be the sort of savior or the ability to reinvent your organization to be something based on information, then it's not necessarily the place to start. And then even if you did have data, then there is the question of, well, who is, there is not a liquid market for data, as, as you know. You know, there are not enough people who are buying and selling at the moment. Not yet, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure there will be, but you know, it's almost oil before the invention of the car. There just wasn't enough demand for it. And you're going to need a – I'm sure you'll get to the hockey stick moment at some point, but there just aren't enough people out there who actually want to pay for this. Yeah, we're very close to the tipping point, the Henry Ford moment. Um, yes. So looking to the future, Neil, what new fascinating use cases can you see coming down the line? I'd probably come back to the point of if you can amalgamate different data sets together. They can be your own, they can be public, they can be things you've had to acquire, but only when you have sort of effectively filled in as many, all of the gaps or as many of the gaps that you can in the data does, does that really change people's thinking about data. I think if, if you're just using single points of data or data sets to do one thing, that's just using a different tool. You're not building something that has legs and a life to it. So it's the point at which people see, you know, there are enough data sets out there and I can start using them and I can start putting it together with my own proprietary data to make real value. But that you know, that's something of a holy grail, but there are one or two organizations doing it, but most of them are really not yet. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I One of our clients uses the phrase mine and combine, which I really, really like. You know, uh, our, another another client has this term mosaic theory, pulling all these data sets together to give stronger signals or output. 
Um, it's definitely, I agree, the holy grail, but it's it's early days. Even the sophisticated hedge funds, it's early days for a lot of those. Um, yeah. And you can have bits of the mosaic missing. You know, it's like a sort of jigsaw puzzle where you can see 60 or 70% of it, it starts to come to life. But if all you have is the is the perimeter, it doesn't look like anything. Yeah, the perimeter is the easy part. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. It's fantastic to get the view inside PwC and specifically about the corporate uses of all this data. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Great to talk. That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.